Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners, and welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm your host for today, Paul Mueller, and we're back today with another episode of the Best Ever Midweek News Brief, where we will run through some of the week's top CRE headlines for you, then invite an expert in to discuss our top story before sending you off for your day, hopefully a little bit more informed. In today's episode, a $4.5 billion multifamily portfolio hits the market, America's warehouse building boom appears to be over, retail has a solid November, and we explain how TikTok has fueled a tsunami of renter fraud and what multifamily landlords can do about it. We'll start in South Florida, where according to Bloomberg Law, Miami-based Lennar, one of the nation's largest home builders, has put a massive 11,000-unit multifamily portfolio up for sale. The portfolio is spread across 38 properties in 15 states and is valued at a staggering $4.5 billion. JLL has been tapped to manage the sale. Look, it's no secret that multifamily sales have been slow at best. Sales volume in the first three quarters of 2023 declined by nearly 62% compared to the same period in 2022, while pricing per unit has dropped by 7.8% since Q1 of 2023. Meanwhile, with higher-end apartments, the multifamily market has dealt with concerns of oversupply. At the end of Q3, of the nearly 1 million units under construction in the U.S., 70% were considered high-end. So, why is Lennar looking to sell now? Well, last week, Lennar reported that its Q4 multifamily revenue stood at $141 million, down from $179 million in the same quarter last year, while recording an operating loss of $12 million. In contrast, Lennar's home building segment performed well in Q4, delivering 24,000 homes and generating $1.4 billion in earnings. So its home building sector has clearly outperformed its multifamily division. Why does it all matter? Well, as CRE Daily astutely points out, a sale of this magnitude could set a precedent for the multifamily market, indicating investor confidence or caution as we venture into an uncertain multifamily climate in 2024, with many investors operating with what appears to be a consensus of cautious optimism. So I'm sure everyone in the multifamily space will have their popcorn ready as they watch this deal unfold. Next, we move on to the industrial sector, where, according to the Wall Street Journal, the great American warehouse building boom is apparently over. The warehouse boom in the U.S. has largely been driven by e-commerce growth during and in the wake of the pandemic. But now, in the first nine months of 2023, compared to the same period in 2022, warehouse construction starts have plunged 48%, the steepest drop since 2009. You can chalk it up to high debt costs and slower leasing momentum for the most part. Rising interest rates have decreased industrial property values by 16%, resulting in increased vacancy rates, all while industrial real estate sales at large fell by 45% in Q3. Construction and vacancies remain strong historically, while defaults are rare, so industrial investors will be keeping an eye on interest rates in 2024, as we all will be, primarily because if rates keep falling, the current trend could signify more of a slowdown than a capital C crisis. Think of it as a rebalancing that could position the sector as a desirable space for sustainable growth moving forward. 
To read the full piece from the Wall Street Journal, click the link in the show notes. And speaking of data and industrial, recent data from Crexi suggests that the industrial and multifamily sectors continued their market corrections in November. Meanwhile, Office posted a third consecutive month of pricing gains, even though occupancy remained stagnant, while retail is thriving, posting a fourth straight month of pricing gains and an average occupancy rate of nearly 86%, its highest since October 2022. Take that for what it's worth, but as we roll into 2024, if you go by Crexi data, retail looks like a desirable asset class and one of the fastest growing. Which brings us to our main story for today. According to a recent article from BizNow, when it comes to multifamily, renter application fraud has gained significant momentum in 2023, largely due to three key factors. One, the ease with which renters can forge documentation in the digital application process or apply using a stolen identity altogether. Two, the accessibility on social media like TikTok, Twitter, Reddit, and more to information on how to forge such documents, or in some cases, the ability to purchase fully fraudulent document packages directly. And three, law enforcement's inability and, let's be real, unwillingness to do anything about it. Here to discuss this with me today is the journalist who researched and wrote that piece for biznow.com, Jared Shank. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital's never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital dot the bam companies.com all right joining me today to discuss this story is the veteran commercial real estate journalist who researched and wrote the story for biznow.com jared shank how are you doing today jared i'm well how are you sir I'm doing well also. Um, renter application fraud has become a growing nuisance for apartment owners, and that's what this piece is about. So why don't you start off by telling me what's happening right now with renter fraud, why it's on the rise, and what that looks like. So I'll get into it how I came across even the story idea. Uh, it was not something I ever thought about before or, or considered. When you look online, when most things you're dealing with fraud are uh, listing frauds, people putting fake listings on, that's a really popular topic online. Uh, it wasn't until I heard Rick Campo uh, on his earnings call in the second quarter, you mention it, and it's specifically highlighting Atlanta about renter fraud. And it, it struck me, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, and so I mentioned it to my editor, and we're like, well, I mean, is it just something Rick Campo experienced, or is this really an industry epidemic? By the, th- by the third quarter, not only was Rick Campo talking about it, but another CEO of a multifamily company started talking about it on their earnings call. So at that point, I knew we had a story. And as I started to dig into it, uh, the breadth of this problem was just astounding. So what is the problem here, Jared? And how is it contributing to renter fraud? Essentially, what you have is a, um, as as experts tell me, is a cottage industry that's thriving on social media of 
people getting doctored documents, even whole fake identities in order to achieve uh, or get approval to rent apartments. Oftentimes, these are luxury apartments, um, perhaps above their means. And once they get in, uh, they'll may never pay and they'll just stay there banking on a uh, eviction system that's clogged and slow anyway and stay in these apartments rent free until the last minute. And then they often just disappear and do it again. So why is this such a growing trend right now? What are the factors that are enabling renters to do this at a higher clip? That's kind of the million dollar question. Everybody has a question as to why this is happening. I think Daniel Berlin, who's the CEO of Snapped, which is one of these screening companies that look for false documents in apartment applications, uh, probably said it best. It's kind of like it's a keeping up with the Joneses attitude that is just on hyperdrive through TikTok, through uh, Instagram and other social media. It's you want to have this image of a lifestyle um, that is essentially fueling people to try to achieve something that they probably f can't financially afford. And in order to do it, they're going to fake maybe what their income really is. They're going to fake, uh, you know, past problems in their, uh, rental history, uh, by, you know, trying to get rid of that they've been evicted before. Um, and then it's just the technology and the spread of it online. It just made it so easy now to be able to do this. So you're saying that some people are defrauding landlords by using fake or doctor documentation to rent luxury apartments just so they can portray a specific kind of lifestyle on social media, one that they can't actually afford. And like you said, keep up with the Joneses. That's wild. So when you say the technology and the spread has made it so easy, what are, what are those factors from a technology standpoint that are allowing this to spread and really enable, enabling people to commit this kind of fraud? Well, you think even 10, 15 years ago, what it would take to doctor a document sufficient enough to make it convincing. Um, it would require a lot of skill that most people didn't have. You, you'd have to be really versed in Photoshop, uh, editing techniques that the average person just didn't have. Well, you know, Photoshop, it, while it's still a, the prime, one of a primary tool, there are so many tools online now that you can just take documents, edit them, and they convincingly look um, you know, real. So that has made it almost democratized fraud in a weird way. And the know-how is also spread. I mean, YouTube channels, um, TikTok videos, uh, there, there was websites on, there were sites on subreddits about basically how to do this at one point on Reddit too. So the information is out there. It's not hard to find. Yeah. I see so many of those videos in my Instagram feed about, uh, here's how you set up a YouTube channel without showing your face to make a million dollars, right? I'm sure it doesn't say this is how you can commit uh, renter fraud, but I'm sure that there are a, a lot of different channels that are featuring this kind of content and giving away these tips and tricks on how to doctor these documents. Where do, where do these live primarily? Where are people finding this information? I didn't know that going into this story. Um, it, it was pointed out to me by a lot of the executives I spoke to for the story that it, it, the, the finger pointings on TikTok, Instagram, Reddit, just social media. Uh, and, and like you said, they don't necessarily say, hey, we're going to teach you how to do, how to defraud your landlord. It's, it's 
hey, you got a problem getting into an apartment. Let me let me show you a way how to, you know, get past the screeners. That's really what's coming down to is get past and getting past the screening process to get approval. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And, you know, one thing that really stood out in your piece was that you know, apartment operators are moving to online leasing platforms more than ever, right? So that's a huge factor here. I mean, your piece cites some Zillow data that in 2022, 23% of renters took zero in-person tours before signing a lease. 69% submitted their applications online and 36% signed their lease electronically. So renters rarely come face to face with a property manager or an operator at this point, making it much easier to pass off fake IDs. That is true. And there isn't by by getting rid of that human element, it makes it easier to pass off fake documents. Would a person be as comfortable literally handing someone a document in person that they knowing was fake, then I'm just going to submit this to, you know, a website and be done with it. And there's there's that element too. the the automatic, the, the digitization of the leasing process has definitely facilitated this. So when you look back at these online communities that are essentially allowing people to collaborate and share how they can uh, commit fraud, or even if their intent is not to commit fraud, get into an apartment without, um, you know, by hiding their rental history or by, you know, fudging these documents so it looks like they make more money and they can get into an apartment that they otherwise couldn't afford. What are the kinds of documents that that people are uh, doctoring the most to submit these fraudulent applications? I, I'm not sure statistically which one's the most, but it seems the more common ones I hear about are pay stubs, are uh, work verification letters, employment verification letters, bank statements that are doctored. Um, and then in some cases, just wholesale, whole identities. They There's this uh, one thing I discovered I didn't know about. It's not, a, not a social security number, but it's like a credit number people are using that they can buy credit numbers online that give them kind of like a, a blank slate of looking like they have good credit scores. That's another tool that seems to be used. Now, I'm not sure if on the, you know, from I don't know how you detect that from the landlord side. Certainly as a person, you know, I don't, I don't know how you're trained enough to detect it. So you're using these screener services that have software that's supposed to be able to detect it. And for, for all I know that, you know, it's, it's doing, it's doing its job. But there's still stuff getting through, clearly. Uh, you think about technology, you think about the exponential rate in which it improves. And, you know, you got to think that the, these screening companies have got to be on the ball because what they can catch today, perhaps tomorrow, you know, they're going to find a way around it. Now, I will say that while my story highlighted on the, the Class A luxury side, um, since this story has run, I had gotten uh, feedback from some readers uh, that this is a problem universal in the multifamily industry. And it it's not just the class A apartments that are experiencing it. Um, couple of trends, it's even on the affordable side, uh, which I thought is an interesting, you know, I thought it was interesting that, you know, you, you would think that you wouldn't need to do as much uh, to get into an affordable apartment than you would in the luxury. Uh, but I think that again, speaks to um, a lot of things, you know, maybe the desperation for housing on that end. And the need to get into housing, and particularly if you have black marks on your credit report or in your background, uh, you want to do what it can to get into some place to live. Particularly on the affordable side, you're willing to take these measures. I, you look at the just the spike in rents that we've experienced in the past ten years. 
affordability is a massive issue in most major cities. Atlanta, which has been kind of centered off by some experts as like the hot market for this kind of activity, especially affordability is now a crisis issue. If you're looking just for a place to live and you have black marks, poor credit, you've been evicted in the past, you're just wanting to get into a place, it, it may feel like a victimless crime. Hey, I'm just trying to get a place to live. I really intend to, you know, pay my rent and be in there. I just, I need to get in there. So you, you take this step, you, you know, you buy a package where you get fake documents, you get into the apartment and maybe at some point you get in over your head too. I, I can't speak for, you know, what the ultimate outcome is in these situations, but I do think that affordability has played a role in this. I want to go back to something you just said there, Jared. You said that some people can, quote, buy a package where you get fake documents, unquote. So they're offering packages, meaning that meaning that I, as a renter, I can just go to them and say, I'm going to purchase this package from you. They give me the documents, and all I have to do is submit those documents as my application. You got it. Yep. Yeah, so that's something else you can kind of bring up. You know, the there's not a lot of effort needed, right? I mean, I pay $100, I get these documents, and, and that's it. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see how if somebody's in a desperate situation where they're looking for housing in a competitive market, they're looking for affordable housing, and they don't have the income to justify the apartment they want to get or any apartment at all, I can definitely see how they would uh, launch into desperation mode and shell out uh, $100 or whatever it is for a package like this just so they can get into an apartment, even if it's just for the month, so they can uh, get their things together and figure out what their next move is going to be. So like you mentioned, that it, it may not always be that the intent is to defraud the apartment owner. But I mean, if if having a roof over your head or not is the stakes, then it's incredible what people will do. Yep, exactly. It. So based on what you uncovered, would you say that when it comes to the luxury apartments, it's more of those keeping up with the Joneses. And when you get down to the affordability level, it's more out of necessity. So they're resorting to fudging some of these documents so that they can simply get into housing and have a place to live. Yeah, I, I would probably agree with that. And that's certainly uh, the indication that's been given to me from the people I interviewed. Uh, I would say it's, it was explicitly stated certainly on the, on the luxury side. How widespread is this? It's widespread enough that, at least according to Snapped, um, for ultimately, 40% of all documents they screened showed hallmarks of uh, forgery, and that's across the country of all their clients. That's a that's a to me that's a that's a really surprising statistic. It comes down to the enforcement side. There seems to be little interest in law enforcement or willingness in law enforcement to pursue uh, the groups that do this, the, the people that that do this. Um, you know, as one CEO told me, it's like, it's not really popular for politicians to say, hey, I'm going to put more money into enforcing uh, evictions. Um, at least, you know, from, from, a, from a social standpoint, that's just not popular to say. So that there's no, you know, to do it, even if you get caught by the landlord and you go through the eviction process, there's real still no consequence. Uh, you just move on to the next apartment. Right. And if you're already in a pattern of forging these documents and covering your tracks and getting rid of your bad history, one more black mark on your record in the form of an eviction isn't really going to make much of a difference. Right. You're just going to be able to cover that track as well and then rinse and repeat. 
So from a law enforcement side, I'm really glad you brought that up because that was one of the big topics that I wanted to hit on. Why is it, I, I completely understand why it's not popular to say, I want to put more money from a, poli- from a politician standpoint, I want to put more money into enforcing evictions. Uh, I can see how that would be an unpopular opinion. But from a strictly from a law enforcement standpoint, why are the authorities so reluctant to pursue this? Yeah, that and, and that could be a whole. I mean, I know it's part of the story, but that could be a whole other story on its own uh, because it is kind of complicated. It's, you know, who has the jurisdiction to pursue this and adjudicate this? Do they have the resources? And these are all questions that were coming up in my inter- in my interviews with people. So, you know, when I talked to this, the attorney general, it, the attorney generals don't have the power unless it's directly involving identity fraud. If they're still, if someone's using their real identity, but they're faking bank statements and, and, and attorney generals can't pursue that. That's local district attorneys, resources, manpower, where you need to focus your attention. I think that all plays into this. I wish I had a better answer, but that's kind of. Well, it's interesting because there seems to be there seems to be a theme of sort of passing the buck down um, all the way up from the FBI level. Because the FBI, I, I think the FBI spokesperson that you mentioned in your piece said that the Bureau doesn't investigate these types of crimes. Um, I'm, I'm going to assume that that's because these are just uh, the FBI has bigger fish to fry, right, than, than renter fraud. And then you mentioned the attorney general is limited in what it can prosecute um, if it's a uh, case of stolen identity, then that's something that falls under their jurisdiction. But if it's not, they pass that down to, um, you know, local law enforcement or district attorneys, right? Marshals, the magistrate court, the marshals, the magistrate court, you know, they're the ones that maybe should have power to, you know, pursue this. But I mean, they're already backlogged with evictions and, and handling that. And then when it gets down to local law enforcement, I see a, a lot of local law enforcement saying that it's a civil matter. And so the, the buck just keeps getting passed down, down and down to the point where these apartment owners are just left kind of holding the buck here and saying, um, there's nothing we can do. All we have to do is focus on our operations, focus on our process and focus on our tenant screening and try to eliminate as many of these fraudulent applications as we can. Yes, that's uh, how I interpret. That's exactly how it was told to me. Then it comes to the question of, well, we're having to get better screening processes. We're having to use better uh, vendors who have the better technology to detect this. That's more expensive. So that is going to raise costs overall on being able to, uh, we got to pass that buck on to to the renter in terms of fees and rents. Right. And in a world where operating expenses are already through the roof from insurance and taxes, you know, all the way down to, you know, lumber for repairs, uh, adding another expense in the form of, you know, the screening process tech is not something that anybody's really keen to do right now. You mentioned you mentioned how widespread this is. Are there any specific markets that stand out that you've seen that where this is more prevalent than others? Yeah, and I've heard this uh, from a couple sources, but um, I believe uh, Snapped had it, and their statistics the best. It's not only Atlanta where this is really a problem. It's Houston, Charlotte, Los Angeles, and Dallas. And I don't have an explanation as to why. I, as a reporter covering this industry industry for as long as I have, had some suspicion. At least if you think about Atlanta, Houston, Charlotte, and Dallas, those are the Sunbelt markets that have benefited greatly from an in-migration of population this past decade from the West Coast and Northeast. Um, lots of people coming in, they're needing housing. Um, perhaps they had black marks or they just, you know, needed a race to find a place to live. 
uh, will prompt you to uh, bend the rules and, and seek documents that are uh, that are doctored in order to get into Barnum. As for Los Angeles, I, I, I can't necessarily, it's, it's not the same, I think, situations as other cities. I think maybe because of the long-term eviction moratoriums, it made it more appealing to be able to, I mean, for someone to get into an apartment, a luxury apartment, and then they can sit there for even longer because they weren't allowed to be evicted. And now that because those maybe that moratorium's lifted, the, the process is still backed up. What was the most interesting fact or trend that you learned or uncovered while you were researching this piece? That it even is an issue was surprising to me to begin with. It's just not something I ever really even thought about. I'm not, you know, of course, I'm not a renter, I'm a homeowner, so I don't go through this process on an annual basis like uh, people who rent do. But um, the creativity of the people who offer these products and services, um, the way they can phrase and word their videos in ways that I think skirts the line of being like flat out saying, we're going to help you do something illegal, but it makes enough implication to say, to basically imply this is how we're going to help you get an apartment. It's a real gray area in terms of free speech. And I, and I think it, was, it struck me so when we approached TikTok and we talked to TikTok, you know, TikTok came back, their spokesman came and said, yeah, definitely, you know, prohibit you know, defrauding or scamming of members on the plat, you know, of the platform. But we make exceptions, and they were for documentary, educational, and counter speech. Now, the spokesman didn't specify that any of these were in those three categories, but I wonder if perhaps maybe they could be considered as such. Right. That's some more creative language for you. What did others who you reached out to say about how they're regulating this kind of content that's essentially teaching people how to defraud apartment owners and get into apartments using fraudulent means? So we reached out to a number of the pages uh, and services that were that Snap provided us as saying these these were the problems. Specific websites they mentioned, um, and we heard nothing back from them. Uh, so TikTok was the only one that responded. TikTok was the only one that responded in this. I will tell you that that there was a subreddit on on um, on Reddit uh, called Apartment Hacks. That when you go to that subreddit. Um, they have a specific warning on there now saying there will be no talk about how to defraud landlords on here. You'll be banned about any talk about using fake pay stubs and all those stuff, which I thought was interesting. It seems like that was brought to their awareness and they're trying to crack down on it. Jared, I appreciate you not just for the work that you did and the research that you did and the diligence that you did in writing this piece and putting it together. Uh, it was a fascinating piece and, and definitely opened my eyes to a lot of different trends that are out there right now. But I also appreciate you taking the time today to come discuss it a little bit further. Well, it's been an honor and a pleasure to speak with you today. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Jared. Uh, thank, again, thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate your perspective and all the work that you did. Keep doing great work, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. If you want to read more from Jared on this story, click the link in the show notes. In the meantime, allow me to leave you with this. After Jared and I spoke, he sent me the five videos he referenced when he approached TikTok about the platform being used as a part of this renter fraud trend. Four of those five videos have since been deleted. Now, it's not clear if the users themselves removed these videos or if TikTok removed them. But either way, it appears that there's at least some increased awareness on the social platform side about the kind of content that's either educating people on how to commit renter fraud or that's directly selling fraudulent document packages. 
But the big question that remains is, since this is and will be an ongoing issue, what can landlords do about it? Well, as a landlord, the first thing you can do is conduct an internal audit of your tenant screening processes and reevaluate your tenant screening software if you're using any. Because if you can identify holes in your process, whether in verifying income and employment, checking rental history, or even verifying someone's identity, you can bet that the fraudsters will find them too. And that's a problem of increasing concern, as it appears now they have even greater means than ever to exploit those gaps. Training up your staff to be vigilant in vetting prospective renters is also key. This could mean having leasing agents take extra steps beyond receiving standard documentation, steps like calling employers and HR departments directly to verify income and employment. It could mean asking for references and then vetting those references with the same strict standards you require for renters. And with the development of digital fraud detection platforms that can spot fake documents and the seemingly inevitable integration of AI, it's obviously coming, more solutions are on the way. And remember, if you are able to proactively identify fraudulent applications or renters, don't just throw them out and move on to the next applicant. Try to identify what marketing channels they're coming from, look for trends, and adjust your strategy accordingly. Does this all sound like a lot of extra work and due diligence? Of course it does. But if the alternative is having renters who don't pay, only to skip town with no consequences, leaving you holding the bag, it might be worth it in the end. That's our show for today. As always, thanks again, best ever listeners. We really appreciate you. If you want to read more about any of the topics discussed today, click the links in the show notes. And remember, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review, share it with someone you think could find some value in it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so... Join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.